Good morning, church. In the past uh, few weeks, we've been walking through this short three-week series of uh, focusing on the nature of faith and hope, uh, the nature and the necessity of these. This morning, we're going to reflect a little bit on love. When you think about the fact that God is love and that of these three that Paul made famous, this triad of faith, hope, and love, Paul tells us that the greatest of these is love. And so, Uh, While we may talk about love often, it is worthy of our reflection, even again this morning. So authentic love changes hearts, it changes homes, it changes communities. It can even change a superpower. By taking care of the poor and loving even their enemies, Christians in the first century overcame a fallen culture of materialism and militarism that was the Roman Empire. They began by loving one another in small ways, sharing their possessions, their food, and showing compassion to women and children and other marginalized people of their time. And when plagues broke out in ancient cities and people fled those cities for fear of their lives, Many times it was the Christians who stayed behind to care for the sick and the dying. The Roman Empire, when it wasn't persecuting Christians, accepted them largely because observers said, see how they love one another. The world still takes note of love, sometimes celebrating it, at other times, I suppose, deriding it. I'll share a modern day or a recent, more recent example of what that kind of love looks like woman by the name of Ruby Jones, was 60, she was a 67-year-old nurse when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans. She chose to stay behind and care for the eight dying patients that she worked with in the hospice unit where she, where she was employed. Her children, her children pleaded with her not to try to be a superwoman. She reported to work on Sunday and didn't leave until Thursday when her patients were evacuated. As the storm broke windows and blew open doors, she assured them that she was there with them and they were not going to leave them. And when the medical center lost power and drinking water and, and, and the floodwaters began coming in, Ruby continued to bathe and feed her charges and dress their wounds. When she left on Thursday after her patients had been evacuated, she was hungry, thirsty, and tired, but she had kept her promise to stay with her patients until the end. And during the most harrowing moments, love for her patience sustained her. We are once again embarking on Holy Week, a retelling of the Christ event. And above the fickleness and the unbelief of the crowds, the jealousy and fears of religious leaders, the abuse and injustice of governmental authorities, the betrayal and abandonment of friends, stands Jesus and the loving purposes of God. God in Christ was stooping to serve, to sacrifice, to endure hatred, betrayal, injustice, and even death, and to forgive his enemies rather than to retaliate. In love, God sent his Son into the world. In love, Jesus gave his life for the life of the world. Love was the driving force, the the motivation, the attitude behind the action. Perhaps the events that we remember on this day, on Palm Sunday, Jesus riding into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey, not a stallion, not a glorious chariot, 
but a beast of burden is an occasion to examine things more closely. If Jesus is Messiah, if he is the king of Israel, if he is the Lord, then what kind of Messiah, what kind of king, what kind of a Lord is he? This is not a conquering war hero who comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday or an almighty ruler or even seemingly almighty God, but the all-vulnerable God who comes humbly, meekly, but powerfully in love. Whatever it means for the world to be saved, God does not do it through the, world, through the worldly means of power involving politics, weapons, and war, but through the unconventional means of utter powerlessness, through the crucifixion of a Galilean Jew who preached the kingdom of God. Christ on the cross is strangely or paradoxically the clearest revelation of God. Jesus reveals a God of authentic and radical love. The violence of the cross is not what God does. The violence of the cross is what God endures. At Golgotha, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies and who in love chooses to forgive. For all its seeming weakness, risk, and vulnerability, love conquers, love wins. As essential as faith and hope are to the Christian experience, love outlasts them. That's why Paul says it's the greatest. Love endures forever. 1 John or 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul wrote, Now these three remain. This is the great love chapter. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Have you ever wondered why love is the greatest? Why we preach the primacy of love? It is who God is. And it is what Christ lived and taught and commanded. All love comes from God. The Old Testament Hebrew word that's often used for love is chesed. You want to say it with me? Chesed. It's back, it's back here. Chesed. It, uh, it means a kind of faithful love. It's the kind of love that somebody's there for you and with you. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's somebody who's got your back. That's the kind of love that that communicates. And that's the kind of love God has for us. And uh, there are other words in Scripture that, of course, that are used for love. Grace is another one. Charis, which is um, uh, a, a, an unconditional kind of love, uh, a, a, love an, a love that's undeserved, if you will. And then the Greek word that is most often used for love in the New Testament is agape. It's the highest form of love. It is a love. It is a, it is a determination to seek the highest good of another, even at great personal cost. So these are some of the some of the definitions and ideas behind the words or the, the words that are used for love within the Scriptures. All love comes from God. I was in Wisconsin this past week, most of this past week, and um, was there visiting my mother who's declining, has declined significantly since I saw her last in December. And uh, just a little backstory: My twin brothers are a year younger than me, Randy and Ron. They they are um, they have power of attorney. They're also my mother's uh, medical proxies, and so they're very involved with with her care. And I told them that I was going to be coming for the week, and I said, "Is there anything I can do?" Well, we still have the house, and and they haven't really had time to be working on that, getting it ready to sell. And um, I said, well, I'll do whatever you want me to do there. And they had asked me to sort of pack up things and get things organized around the house. So when I wasn't with my mother this week, I was at the house and uh, going through things. And I have 
Through the whole week, and not just at the house, through the whole week, I had many reminders and experiences of love. I was going through my dad's drawers, dresser drawers, and I found a box of, of pictures, and uh, going way back, I mean, pictures of me as a baby with my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, and I, I pulled out a few that I wanted to keep for myself, ones that I didn't already have, and then I found a couple pictures of my twin brothers, and I, and I left them there on top for them to see when they, when they go to open up that box. Uh, it's with them. They're maybe one and a half, two years old. They're both wearing the same outfit. They're holding each other's hands. They are still close to this day. They, they uh, hunt and fish together. They bowl together. They, they own property together. They, uh, they're close. Their families are close. And um, so I, I, that picture struck me. But the picture that was underneath it struck me even more. It was a picture of my mother in her bathing suit at, at about age 26. She looked pretty good. And uh, it's a one-piece bathing suit. She's sitting in front of uh, the boathouse at my grandparents on the lake. And she's sitting there watching the twins who are um, there at, uh, in the water and in front. And it struck me, my mother was watching over the twins there, and now they are watching over her. That's love, you know? And, and it comes. And, of course, it's the right thing to do. It's, it's the natural thing to do. And, and, you know, they're happy to do it, but it does come at some cost, at some sacrifice. And uh, Randy, one of them, he is, he's with my mother nearly every day, and the other brother is there three or four times a week. My mother's getting great care, not only from my brothers, from hospice, and from the other uh, folks uh, in the facility where she's staying. God is love. Love flows between Father, Son, and spirit, and extends to all that exists. In love, God created this world and all who live in it. In love, God sent his Son into the world. In love, God shares our humanity that we may share in his divinity. Love is at the heart of everything that God does and who he is. We can talk about God's purity and holiness. We can talk about truth and God's justice, but these are never separate from, but are shaped by the supremacy of love. Love is so great that it is mentioned 551 times in the Bible, just the word love. And then there are many more words that are akin or essentially expressing love in some other form or fashion so literally thousands of words in the Scripture that communicate love. I'm always struck, though, by one lone verse in John's Gospel that is the preface to the washing of the disciples' feet that really is a preface to the entire um, narrative, passion narrative that John writes. And this is from John 13:1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. That's John 13, 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Of course, Jesus loved his disciples. But now that love would take on new depth and be revealed in ways that were radical. It is a love that is reckless and knows no bounds. And it is a love that will ultimately redeem humanity and restore God's good creation. 
Jesus knows that his time is short. This is D-Day. This is ground zero. This is the moment for which he came. Jesus was, willing, Jesus was willingly laying down his life, but not without an overwhelming sense of dread and deep anguish. And the weight of this is already settling upon him as he comes into Holy Week and even that night of the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper with the disciples. But it's interesting that in one of the other Gospels, at least one of the other Gospels, they mentioned that while the disciples were on the way to the upper room to celebrate with Jesus that night, even though the celebration had a sense of a bit of a somberness over it because they had a sense that something was coming. But on the way there, what were the disciples doing? They were arguing among each other about which of them is the greatest. Again. 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 And Jesus silences them by simply getting up quietly and stooping to wash their feet. Kind of an amazing scene. And uh, it's the job of a servant. Even in these final hours together, Jesus does not fail to impart wisdom to his followers, demonstrating true greatness and the nature of love. And then after washing their feet, Jesus says, and this is John 13, 34 to 35, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus is known for his love. Jesus makes God the Father known through his love. And Jesus tells us that we are to be known for our love. And loving well, loving authentically, and sometimes radically, will reveal the one who we belong to. The one who first loved us and who commanded us to love. On the way to, to Wisconsin, I noticed the two, two, two billboards. They were the same billboard, but I noticed it in two different places. I think it was somewhere in Indiana or Illinois. And uh, the, what caught my attention were two very prominent words that pretty much took up the entire space of the billboard. Obey commands. Caught my attention. Well, the whole sign said, I think I've got this right, real Christians obey the commands of Jesus. I don't know for sure who's behind the sign or what's behind it. But it begs the question, what are the commands of Jesus that we're supposed to obey? A new command I give you. Love one another. And then Jesus continues this discourse on love in that upper room when he's with the disciples. Now this is in John chapter 15, starting with verse 9. Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands... You will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And then verse 17, this is my command. Love each other. Could it be any clearer? Could it be any clearer? You want to obey the commands of Jesus? It is to love. Sometimes I get criticized for 
talking all this love talk, you know? Sometimes I get tired of this love talk. I'm told that Pastor Eldon got the same criticism, so I feel like I'm in good company. Jesus talked a lot about love, as did Peter and Paul and John especially. I don't listen. I know that there's a need to define when we're talking about love, what kind of love are we talking about? But I don't think, when I think of love, I I know what the Scripture intends. And I don't think of love as something that is soft and easy. Sometimes it is hard, complicated, and messy. Some are disturbed by talk of love because they think that it will be abused, misused, misunderstood, and used as a license to go on sinning or to behave badly. Honestly, listen. Honestly, if you are preaching love and grace in all of its purity and with all of its power, people will abuse it. People will take advantage of it. It's the nature of the beast. If we don't make Jesus and his love known, the rocks will cry out. Without God's love, without the overwhelming, overflowing mercy and grace of God, there is no hope and there is nothing for faith to cling to. Honestly, I I am both comforted by God's love, but I am also challenged by it and convicted by it. I fall so far short of loving God and others and even myself as God does. But I rejoice in God's love. I want to revel in it, believe it, trust it, rest in it, delight in it, dance in it, respond to it. As one who is made in the divine image and redeemed by the love of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit, I am embraced by love and I am, and I am empowered to love. God, you, Myself as God loves me, others, my neighbor. And as I grow and mature in faith, by the grace of God, I discover that fear is, fear is melting away and I can love even those that, that are different from me, those who I disagree with, those who I may consider my enemies. Friends, Jesus could not have gone to the cross. He could not have endured suffering and injustice. He could not have forgiven his tormentors or us if he were not absolutely confident and secure in the love of his Father. And it was from that place of absolute embrace and trust and the flow of love that Jesus invites us, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. It's God calling. (laughs) Stay connected. Stay in the flow. Maybe you don't feel loved today. Maybe, maybe you don't feel especially lovely. It's not dependent on you, though. God doesn't love me or you because of what we do or what we don't do. God loves because He is love. And even when we aren't very loving, God still loves. Listen, we are living in a time when it is quite easy and perhaps even natural not to love. When times are uncertain and we don't know or understand all that is happening and our hearts are gripped with fear or worry, it is easy, it is easy to withdraw, to close in, to protect ourselves. Jesus said that near the end or what may seem like the end, that the love of most will grow cold. 
Why? Because of fear. Fear limits love. It causes our hearts to become cynical, calloused, and cold. Only the reminder and assurances of God's love can melt away those fears, enabling us to love again as we have been loved. Maybe this week, since it is Holy Week, as you think, this is my invitation to you, to think on the events of this week. In fact, maybe even, yes, avail yourselves of the opportunities you have this week of the One in Christ service, Monday, Thursday, the Good Friday service here, the Good Friday uh, journey here, the concert at First Cove. Avail yourself of all those things, but maybe even in your own quiet, sit down and read through the passion narrative of any one of the Gospels. And by the way, um, I, think, I think this is true. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tend to be more historical in the sort of like just telling the events of Holy Week in detail. John, on the other hand, while he's telling the events, seems to be speaking to the church. And it is, in the, it is in that context because he records almost, I think it's five chapters of John's gospel are devoted to Jesus' words that last night with his disciples. And you know when you're with someone for the last time or what you think might be the last time, you pay attention to every detail, don't you? Every word. Every expression. And they're with Jesus that night. And what did John remember? All of that Jesus did and taught and commanded about love. I think that was John's word to the church. History tradition tells us that you know, John lived to be about 100 years old. And when he was very old and they were carrying him through the streets on cots, he would say, my children love one another, love one another. And this is, this is according to tradition. People would ask him, young people would ask him, John, why are you always telling us to love one another? And his reply was always, because that is what our Lord taught us to do. That's the word to the church today. And where was I going with that? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so read, that, read through that narrative this week. Because it's a word to us. And maybe a particular poignant word for us in this day and age. Because Good Friday didn't look so good. Okay? It was awful. The things that happened that week, the injustices, the betrayals, the abandonment. I mean, all the, the ugliness of all, of everyone, on everyone's part that week. It's awful. It's, it's the world at its worst. You know, we talk about Jesus taking our sins upon himself. Jesus endured our sin. The greed, the pride, the jealousy, the fear. Jesus endured all of that. He didn't have to. But he endured it. And instead of retaliating, instead of walking away, instead of getting off the cross, whatever, he did it for us. In love. If the church is truly the hope of the world, 
this world that seems more divided, more polarized than ever, then it will need the church to be a beacon of love. Love that is more than words. Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest, a gifted teacher and, and, and writer, wrote this. He said, the spiritual life starts at the place where you can hear God's voice, where somehow you can claim that long before your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your school, your church touched you, loved you, and wounded you, long before that, you were held safe in the eternal embrace. You were seen with eyes of perfect love long before you entered into the dark valley of life. The spiritual life, he says, starts at the moment that you can go beyond all the wounds and claim that there was a love that was perfect and unlimited long before that perfect love became reflected in the imperfect and limited and conditional love of people. The spiritual life starts where you dare to claim the first love. John 4.19, love one another. Because I have loved you first. In his word, God assures us, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Chesed. My love endures forever. When the Israelites every year came into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, there were, there were a number of psalms or songs that they sang. They're called the Songs of Ascent. They sang them as they went up the mount, and when they went up the hill to Jerusalem to the temple. And uh, Psalm 118 is among that uh, cluster of, of um, hymns or songs that they sang every year. In fact, we're told that when Jesus and the disciples finished the Last Supper, they were singing hymns as they descended across the Kitchen Valley over to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what Psalm 118 says. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine upon us. With bows in hand, join in the festal procession. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. Let's pray. God, all praise and thanks to you that you are a faithful God, a God of authentic and real and radical and reckless love, that your love is unfailing. It never ends. It endures forever. And God, you will accomplish what you desire according to your loving purposes. God, even as your love never fails, God, may it be true of us as well. May our love never fail. And when it does, forgive us and fill us again with your Spirit and by your Spirit, that love that comes from on high. God, raise up your church that we may be a beacon of hope and light in this world. A place that loves well. A place, God, that loves so well that people cannot help but see you. God, we rejoice in you and in your great love. We love because you first loved us. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.